0: Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is LIVES, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. LIVES' radio show and podcast stands in solidarity with black communities and community leaders to demand justice and fight against the systemic racism deeply embedded in our society. I offer humbly my condolences to the grieving families who have lost their loved ones through brutality and racist violence no one should have to fear for their life because of the colour of their skin. But this is the reality black people confront every single day. We must not only denounce racial inequity that persists, but we must, to borrow from Ibram X. Kendi, be anti-racist, hold our leaders and institutions accountable, and bring about lasting social justice and systemic change. As a society, we, I, must actively listen to the lived experiences of our neighbours. In today's show, we will listen back to excerpts from conversations with just some of the previous guests on the show that will speak not only to the lived experience of these injustices, but also celebrate the rich possibility and the magic to be found in minority communities. Let's hear their voices now. Omaha-based artist Barber spoke with me in September 2019. We began our conversation with Barber's interpretation of a James Baldwin quote. So I was really struck by this quote from James Baldwin that is given prominence on your website. Mm -hmm. And the the quote is, the purpose of art is to lay bare questions hidden by answers. So I want to ask, what what does that mean for you?
1: First off, I want to say uh, I don't think I can add or do any justice to James Baldwin. And uh, (laughs) so my opinion is simply... Very low, in just my opinion of it. Um, but yeah, I think that art is supposed to uh, challenge by any and all means uh, something, a part of you. Um, I feel as though the artist's job is to be a critic of society. It could be aesthetically, it could be politically, but the artist is always criticizing or judging or trying to resolve something. It just so happened in my case that I'm looking at it from a social point of view. Um, even thinking about W. E. B. Du Bois when his whole thing about Black art is like whatever it is, even if it's just aesthetic, uh, is first uh, propaganda. And I and I hold to that because whatever we do is is under this microscope is is for a cause. We don't we don't have the uh, I guess, uh, the liberty to just sit, sit by and sit and, and do anything and, and just do it just because. Uh, we should use our voice and use our whatever to add to uh, the conversation that is and, and surrounds black culture. And so I think uh, James Baldwin uh, is saying that, uh, make, it, make it intentional, basically, <laughs> and challenge, challenge the status quo.
0: I guess, borrowing from, from Baldwin, what are some of the questions... To the driving your mm-hmm. art form,
1: you know, I think for me personally is how do I have this conversation? Um, well, there's there's two there's two two parts of my practice. There's the uh, performance aspect, and then there's the two dimensional painting. So um, though they're related, they're they're kind of pushing uh, or asking different questions with my performance practice. Um, I am asking, how can I have this conversation uh, uh, about blackness and or black oppression uh, with non-black bodies and not seem like I'm complaining and not seem like and not become or, or, or present myself overly aggressive? That's the question I'm trying to ask myself. That's the question I'm trying to answer you know my actions respond my uh, like respond to that i i want to say first and foremost but it's definitely considered it's considered in my actions i don't want to come off as uh complaining cuz i felt that uh that's a that's definitely a thing in fact that my recent um opening um that i had at the pet shop uh it was just my paintings actually but there's one painting in particular that caught this uh person's attention and uh he accused me of or he accused black artists of having work that's talking about social issues and he accused them of uh stirring the pot because uh in his own words black people have a good these days
0: <laughs> <laughs> should we just pause for a second well, we can just just <laughs> yeah. just to let that sink yeah. in
1: seriously seriously so just, just, I just need to wake up and, you know, smell, smell the roses. Uh, but that's exactly right. That's exactly what I had to do when he said that. Because he said a lot of things before that that was just as troubling, if not worse. Um, but the image had the words in there, stop lynching. So I have this, I have this series of work uh, that I do where I'm responding to the algorithms on Instagram. I think it's safe to say that my feed on Instagram is uh, curated based off algorithms and so whenever there's a two consecutive images that have a narrative I screenshot them and so the first image says what's a brother got to do and it was of Hank Willis Thomas and so on and so forth and then the next image said stop lynching and so I thought that was pretty telling there was a conversation between those two images that I didn't set up that way so I screenshot them and then I worked on top of it Um, but my response to the gentleman was well, um a black body didn't actually post that. That was posted by a white female body and he was stumped. And I didn't get a chance to uh continue the conversation with him because luckily someone tapped me on the shoulder and gave me a hug and said, Hey, congratulations, da 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 da. And when I turned back he was gone. Um but I really wanted, you know, to hear his response to that because, you know, his whole accusation was that, you know, black people post stuff like that, just to stir the pot. And here it is that this was not uh, a black body. It was a, it was a white body. So,
0: How are you different because of your art? How are you different now after years of practicing this interdisciplinary art? I think
1: I'm different not necessarily because of my art, just because I'm answering the questions that I have. Everybody have a lot of questions. All of us have questions about life, religion, and everything else. Some of us choose not to resolve those questions. Um, I use art as an excuse, as a motivator, rather to answer those questions. And so um, you can't help but constantly grow if you're answering the questions that your own self put put to you, that your conscience put put to you. Um, I'm I'm more mature uh, than I was before. Uh, Hopefully we all are, <laughs> but my practice as an artist puts that on display, and it holds me accountable more so than any other career, I guess, uh, than, than other careers. Not any other but most most careers. So it it forces me my the way I practice art forces me to put those things on display and hold me accountable to the things that I say and do, and I like that.
0: Uh, yeah, doesn't it take a huge amount of courage? to be that vulnerable, to not only put your art out there and literally your body when you're performing, Mm -hmm. but at the same time knowing that those acts and practices are inherently ambiguous and uncertain because you're not trying to present the answer. You yourself are looking at questions. Mm -hmm.
1: I think it takes a lot of optimism. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because... Courage, I guess so, but you really have to believe that it's gonna do something uh, that is working and that it it works uh, or that it's gonna work. Um, And if you believe enough, then you really don't need courage, you know? (laughs) You don't need to, you're not not aware that you're actually being vulnerable. Um, You just have this mission and have this hope and that's the fuel for it all. So, yeah, I think that's the
0: case. Dewan Lamont Hayes founded Noise Omaha, an acronym that stands for North Omaha Information Support Everyone, as a result, he said, of awakening to the information disparity within his community. Dewan and Noise Omaha is continuing to grow its news team and coverage to galvanize information creation and sharing across North Omaha. Early in our conversation from March 2019, we talked about his own origins that led up to Noise Omaha. So before we talk in more detail about media generally, and noise in particular, you awakened to information disparity in your community. And I want to take that in two parts. So the first part is to ask you to describe community. So describe your community. Certainly.
2: I was born and raised on 42nd and Wirt Street in the center of what is known as North Omaha. My family grew up on 24th and Manderson. So there's a, a root in the Northeast region of Omaha that, for a long time, through historical forces and social upheaval, I guess, has had its own reputation. But growing up, and leaving and coming back, you see that it's this beautiful place. After I graduated from Creighton, I came back to my home and saw that not much had changed. That was because there wasn't communication. There wasn't a reliable source that people trusted to get the news that the the information that they needed, not even news, just like details about what the world around them in a reliable way.
0: You've talked a little bit about leaving mm-hmm. and coming back to see the landscape of northeast Omaha not having changed as much as maybe you expected. I, I don't know. So maybe describe that picture of it as a as a child and, and maybe the small ways it has changed and the ways it hasn't.
2: You know, I, I had a, I would say, a normal childhood. Um, played with the neighbor kids. It was very, I think, very family-oriented street. I went to Martin Luther King Elementary But then I was transferred to Western Hills, and which is in like Dundee. And that move expanded my whole worldview of like what my city looked like. You know, I was meeting different children and experiencing these activities that people that the kids in my neighborhood would never get to see. I was able to go to a university and be like and be told you could go here. Whereas other kids that I would play with back home didn't have that same opportunity, and then I went to middle school at Beveridge, way out west in Omaha. But it's an art school, and you know they're encouraging of creativity. And in 2008, um, during the recession, our house was foreclosed on, and we had to move. So I moved to Bellevue and um, continued my education. But you know I left my childhood home behind after 13 years, and. Um, Went to Beverage and went to Central High and then went to Creighton and, you know, had all these opportunities. And then I traveled right after school for a few months. And then I come back to my hometown and see that, like, the neighborhood that I grew up in looks exactly the same. The streets that I that my family grew up on look exactly the same as I remembered as a child. That just kind of baffled me because I had, I got to like leave the world and develop this like much broader view and see how whole cities and states are changing and shifting. And then you come back and it seems like there's this time capsule that's unmoved. And that led me to ask why. So I had an opportunity to get my first job out of school at the Union for Contemporary Art as their first communications manager and as a visual performing artist myself with background in communication, it just was a natural fit. I got to be right back home um, advocating for something I love um, because I understand the power that it had on my life and hoping that it, it would be able to have the same on others. But then the challenge I saw was, you know, we have this great facility with all these amazing programs, all these phenomenal opportunities, but no one knows or has a, a source of information that they could connect to that they trusted to then come participate and engage. I had to physically be present and convince people each time like, hey, this is a place and this is why. And so when the opportunity came to really explore how people get their information and then to do something about it, um, that's when noise started.
0: In our full conversation, Barber had referenced an art installation at Fontenelle Forest, which is just 10 minutes south of downtown Omaha. In October, 2017, Marisa Whitehall, the executive director of Fontenelle Forest, spoke with me about her work, her life, and her passions. I asked Marisa to share what had motivated her love for the natural world.
3: Well, I'm a human being. (laughs) And so there's a natural connection that I have to nature. You know, I'm from Nebraska. I grew up um, here in Nebraska, and I come from a family of hunters. One of the things that we've been talking a lot about at Fontenelle Forest is even within the current community of people that love nature, the way nature lovers engage in the natural world is very diverse. Just moving back recently from the Pacific Northwest, talking about my hunting heritage was not very popular. <laughs> but it's a real way to respect, engage with nature. And hunters, in fact, are, are um, strong conservationists. Um, and that's not something that people know a lot about the hunting community and the hunting culture Um, My grandfather and my mom, I remember, you know, going out and we'd go fishing and that sort of thing. And all the kids, when I was growing up, we'd help clean whatever the catch was or whatever came in from the hunt. And so, you know, pulling out rabbit guts and (laughs) all the stinky stuff, it's just been a normal part of my life. And it was subconscious. Um, When I got a little bit older... In college, you know, moved out of my parents' home, without thinking about it really, um, really only in retrospect did I come, become aware that I would seek solace in our city's natural spaces. My favorite place to go to was Hummel Park. And I remember there, I don't know if it's still there, but there was an area that people referred to as Devil's Slide. It was over uh, a ridge. And um, because there was, it was kind of a, a drainage and there was erosion there. And it was big enough for people to sort of slip down there. But it was called Devil's Slide because if you, actually slipped or you went too far, you're going to fall off the edge of the ridge. That wouldn't be a good thing. Um, but as young people, we'd like to try and, you know, test those boundaries. And um, that was the place that I'd go to when I was in college, and I just needed to decompress. I needed to get away, and I'd go there sometimes with friends, but most of the time I'd just go alone and just sit and look over the cornfields and the wind would blow over the cornfields, and um, folks back in Seattle made fun of me because I told them that watching the wind blow over the corn was like watching the ocean, and they thought I was really (laughs) provincial.
0: (laughs) I I was going to use a different P word. I was going to go with poetry.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's more appropriate. Yeah, I'll have to go back, and whenever they... They say that about me. I'll tell them it's more poetic. Um, get with it. So, um, <laughs> but you know, and then and then even after college, um, once I finally graduated from college, which took a little bit wa- longer um, than four years, I ended up moving to Seattle, and um, I started working then with a touring arts performance group. Uh, we traveled on the road in a forty-foot eagle coach about five to eight months out of every year. And driving across the country is not environmentally sensitive. However, it's a great way to see the land. And um, I've seen the entire country. And over the course of the almost 10 years that I was traveling consistently across the country, actually spending more time on the road than I spent in Seattle, I just... Became more and more odd and in love with the land in our country. And uh, we would, in between gigs, you know, we would pull off into some park grounds or we'd visit the national parks or, you know, just a lot of living in the outdoors. That was, I think, the point in my life that I actually became consciously aware. Of the profound love that I have for the natural world, um, I've had a number of different careers in my in my lifetime, from the performing arts to higher education, nonprofit management. And really just recently in my career have I transitioned to these executive director roles in organizations that are focused on uh, land restoration or environmental education. But I just feel like uh, it's, it's been a part of my life's journey. And although it is not something that I could have foreseen in my life because of my journey, I feel that I have been completely prepared for this role.
0: Has the world been prepared for you? Because let's talk about some obvious stereotypes. Um, you're an African-American woman in a leadership role in an ecological-based environment. And I think the data is pretty clear that minorities don't frequent national parks as much as um, the, you know the white majority does. Um, so there are all sorts of other aspects to this. I wonder if you would just speak a little bit to this maybe having been your journey, but I wonder if the world was quite ready for you.
3: I think the world is ready for me. Um, I do. I don't feel that I would have been selected for this role if if the world, if Omaha, Fontenelle Forest wasn't ready for me. That being the case, I do think that it just... M- me being the person that I am with the cultural and social experience that I have as a woman and as a person of color makes my leadership, makes the leadership that I bring and the perspective that I bring to an organization like Fontenelle forest different. And I think that's really valuable because as you mentioned, um, the National Park System, uh, the National Audubon Society, Nature Conservancy, these very large organizations that share an affinity for the values and the mission that Fontenelle Forests have recognize the importance of engaging and including a more diverse community in the work that these organizations are going to do. It's really about environmental justice, it's about environmental impact, it's about mission impact. A lot of people in our field like to say that the work we're doing is work that's meant to change the world. And so I think a very important question we have to ask ourselves, especially when it comes to the demographic makeup of our staff, of our membership, and our visitorship, how are we actually going to change the world when the majority of the world is excluded? And so I really see my role and the invitation to take on this important role at Fontenelle Forest as a statement, a very clear statement by our board that we do want to include our entire community. We do understand that all of our community needs to be engaged for, in order for our organization to fully realize our mission.
0: You also mentioned that you're from a, a hunting family, and I again just want to add that to the the list of stereotype-defying perceptions that you bring to this role. And I I, guess in- I
3: don't think that's a I don't think that's really stereotype-defying. Really, I think that. Um, I think it's really important for us to keep in mind that our personal experience provides us with a very specific lens, a different a very specific way of seeing the world. I, I the story, the parable of, of folks all standing around an elephant, blind men standing around an elephant, and they're putting their hands on the elephant and describing the elephant, but all they really understand is where their hands are. They don't understand the entire elephant. And I think that when we talk about cultural perceptions of... People's relationship to nature, I think, were very similar to the blind people standing around the elephant. Um, You know, my family came to the state of Nebraska, and they were farmers. Um, A lot of people that came to any part of the north from the south, their families generally are coming from rural environments. Uh, My family came to Nebraska right after the Civil War. And uh, my great-great-grandparents had been slaves. Um, And so there's a real strong connection to nature (laughs) when you're a farmer and when you're living in a shack (laughs) in a small town, um, which, you know, my father is from rural Arkansas, and many of the members of my family still live in very rural environments. That is the reality of the black community. It's the reality of many people in Immigrant communities coming to the United States, um, whether it's from you know uh, from from Eastern or Western Africa, from Mexico, from South America, or the Caribbean, people do have a strong relationship and live closely in relationship with the land. Um, a lot of people don't have nice grocery stores to go buy their food, and they do hunt for their food and they do fish. Again, our cultural lens is, as Americans, and I'm very much of an American, is based on the life that we have created for ourselves. Um, buildings and jobs and transportation and all kinds of amenities that don't require us to go out and hunt for our food. They don't require us to go out and fish for our food. Um, we depend on other people for that. That's how our society is built. And so... When we think about diverse communities not having a relationship with nature, we're applying our lens and we have to be very, very thoughtful about that um, because it can unintentionally undermine our wishes and our aspirations for including others and including diversity.
0: Omaha native Othello Meadows is a community developer and the CEO of 75 North. In January 2017, Othello spoke with me on the theme of the black middle class. Othello shared how his experiences growing up and then later in life seeing more of the world shaped his perspectives on what was meant by and what was possible as regards the black middle class.
4: I mean, I guess the best way I can sort of answer that in in my experience is just when I left Omaha, um, especially as it relates to black people, when I left Omaha in 1994, I thought that black people everywhere lived the way that black people in Omaha lived, meaning that there was this minute uh, black middle class and that there were a handful of black people that were living at a certain level whatever that level is right to me it meant sort of uh maybe your family had two cars you lived in a house uh you lived in a neighborhood that was further west than than you know where i grew up or where anybody else i knew grew up so those were kind of my indicators of sort of middle classness um when i left here i went and i went to school in a in a town called greenville north carolina uh and it was interesting to see a town that was maybe a fifth the size of omaha that had a much larger black middle class um and it was really an eye-opening experience to me i saw uh african-americans that that um owned acres right like thousands of acres and and owned businesses and were deep into agriculture uh, my first road trip uh, in college was to Atlanta, and I just remember thinking, uh, "This is nothing like home," uh, and it was a, a completely mind blowing experience for me because up until then I thought everybody lived like I lived in Omaha, and I, and I lived—I had a great upbringing, uh, but we certainly didn't have uh, a ton of extra money. But uh, that was my first inkling that that Omaha is a different place as it relates to black people and wealth and black people in class. Um, And that was really formative for me because it was unlike anything I'd ever seen.
0: Did you think of yourself as middle class, looking back, if if you thought about this as a child, but did did you think of your family background or your place in Omaha
4: as generally middle class? Uh, Both my parents uh, uh, were college educated. Um, My father, however lost his vision uh, at a relatively young age uh, and had a myriad of other um, health issues which left him unable to work and so um, I think educationally I thought, I thought of ourselves I think of ourselves as very um, very middle class and very striverish um, financially uh, you know we relied pretty heavily on my mother and, and her income, um, and she went back and got her degree, got her bachelor's degree from UNO years later. Um, you know, all while kind of raising a family and and uh, kind of maintaining a household. And so, I think educationally, I thought of ourselves as as, a, as middle class. Um, I don't think the money always matched up, <laughs> but uh, there was certainly a feeling in our household of. Expectation um, regarding college, you know, and beyond. So um, those two things were a little bit juxtaposed there, like uh, the actual tax bracket and the education bracket. So, mm. um, so it's a little complicated for me.
0: There's a 2011 study from Pew Research Center that shows that w- the white population possesses 20 times more wealth than african-americans and and that makes it seem a little bit hopeless in in some sense from from where i'm sitting how how do we cultivate um, a healthy middle class especially a middle class in minorities with the disparities seemingly so
4: large yeah i mean i think if you just look at that that statistic absent any context um like to me that statistic rings like super true here Right. When I think about that, I'm like, okay, that, that sounds about right. Um, based on living in the Raleigh-Durham area, uh, the, the Atlanta metro area, those things, um, you know, that same stat doesn't seem quite so compelling, right? Because, I mean, there's just lots of examples kind of to the contrary um, and probably lots of data to the contrary there, although I suspect there's still a gap. But, um, you know, I think in a place like this, it's easy to feel hopeless. Um, And it's easy to think that this is the entirety of the black experience. Um, We're geographically isolated, I think, uh, philosophically and from kind of an exchange of ideas perspective. We're also rather isolated here, uh, even by Midwestern standards. Uh, So I think, you know, those things seem to have so much more heft in a place like this. Uh, Than I do somewhere else which for me was you know back to an an earlier comment was why getting out of here and seeing other things was so Was so valuable to me Um, Otherwise, I would have read that that same statistic and felt like what's the point? Mm -hmm. Um, But then you see other things you have to see other places you have other experiences that that uh, Let you know that it's possible In
0: August 2017, I spoke with Zora J. Murph, a photographer and a psychologist. His work has been exhibited internationally and published in the New York Times, among others. Drawing on his experiences working with youth and in correctional facilities and human services, Zora's photography focuses on race, identity, and how images are used to reinforce socio-cultural constructs. I asked Zora to talk more about that.
5: I was all, I've always been very drawn to portraiture. And I think that kind of goes back to that initial experience with that Sally Mann photo. Um, and so I knew I wanted to make portraits. And um, so, you know, I was making portraits of the kids um, and then, you know, like after a while, like that kind of gets repetitive. And so then what else, you know, what else, what other types of images can I make to um, like show their experiences inside of the system? And so, uh, you know, it was the so it started with the portraits and then I moved on to making the landscapes of the crime scenes, like where they had committed crimes. Um, and then, you know, then going further and um starting to uh photograph items that they come into contact with when they're incarcerated um in, in the studio and then, you know, digging through these archives at the detention center that have like all their personal writings that they do for these assignments. Um And then, you know, kind of, I guess, taking a step back and figuring out like what all of these things mean, I guess, like when they're when they're put together under, you know, one context or one umbrella. And so it's, I guess, looking at how these kids become stigmatized when they're brought into the system, you know, like they're they're criminals. And we as a society see the criminal as the other. right? But then also looking at um, ideas of uh, memory, Um, you know, like these these locations that hold these memories of these crimes that happen. But then also, and then also looking at, I guess, like how the context of the system influences not only these objects, but then um, how that extends to the person who has to interact with that object. I don't know, like it, it all. I guess relates in how like photography has been used inside of the criminal justice system since its inception. Uh, I mean, you have like the, the Bertillon system um, which was um, invented by Alphonse Bertillon in France where, and that's where we draw the mugshot from. And it was, he was trying to document the criminal type. So, you know, like an image of a person mixed with like phrenology and physiognomy and um, you know, like taking head and skull measurements and saying like, you know, well, a person with a forehead this big is, you know, tends to be, you know, tends to commit crimes. So therefore, you know, they're a criminal and how those kind of antiquated ideals are passed or, you know, like are brought forward, um, into the present day and how we think that, you know, these things are changing, but in a lot of ways they're not changing. they just get rebranded or in some sort of way.
0: You spoke in September 2016 at TEDx Lincoln, mm-hmm. And of course, for listeners, you can go online and, and search for Zora's presentation. One of the things, Zora, that you said was that if we can't change reality, can we change the eyes with which we see it? And that's such a fascinating idea mm-hmm. that you are using your craft and your talent and photographs as... as a way to replace the viewer's eyes. Right. So, could you perhaps just expand a little bit on on that idea mm-hmm. of using your craft and using photography as a way to help people see see things anew?
5: Well, I think that with you know, like the portraiture and um, corrections, thinking about this individual's personhood. We know that, you know, like under the context that I've provided that you know this kid is in some sort of trouble. Um, but how do we like see past that, I guess? how do how does someone regain their their personhood after being being called a criminal or being labeled a criminal? And I think that comes with like, I suppose, you know, looking at what it is that I've made. Um, thinking about ideas that you hold and then maybe trying to shift or reframe those ideas or at least starting a conversation about it. Um, One thing that does typically happen, um, you know, like if I have an exhibition or, or something like that, there's usually one or two people that come up to me and just say, wow, I didn't know that this existed in my own community. And so, you know, that in itself, you know, starts a conversation or, you know, meeting someone who has been through the juvenile criminal justice system themselves and saying, wow, like, I really like how you show these kids for who they really are. Right. Yeah, I guess, I guess thinking about it in those terms.
0: Are you able to describe an example or an illustration of Mm -hmm. some of the processes and themes that you've been talking about? Mm hmm.
5: Well, I think that, you know, art can operate in a multitude of ways. Um, You know, it can be very, I guess, like in your face and you kind of get it right away Um, or you can rely on nuance. And so I think for me, at least a lot of the best art is art that's nuanced that I can look at and I think that I understand it. Um, but then I go back to it and I think about it again and I notice something that I hadn't seen before. Right. Uh, and so I think with, uh, the images that I've made, it kind of operates, I suppose, in both ways. Um, and so there's one portrait in particular of a young man who's wearing an ankle monitor and he's standing on a, um, a track around a football field and there's like the, um, the goalpost in the background and, you know, he's turning his body. Away from the camera, and he's looking at the goalpost. And so, I think um, that image, to me, is, I guess, not necessarily a nuanced image. Um, you know, I was when I was making that portrait, I was thinking about that young man, and um, he was a great athlete, just a, a really, really great athlete. I mean, he did football and and wrestling and, and track, and was just amazing at it. Um, But, you know, being put on an electronic monitor, um, he couldn't play football that season. And thinking about how that piece of plastic was a tether, you know, like a shackle, and how it was keeping him weighted to the ground, you know, where he couldn't, you know, he couldn't get up and reach his own potential. Uh, And he, you know, he dealt a lot with that. Um, I think that was really hard for him. And I think that, um, it's kind of, it's the weight of the system itself. Um, you know, it's, yes, you know, this kid did something wrong. Um, but you're taking away his opportunity to better himself and how is that in a way helping him? Right. And so, yeah, so I think, well, I think I've just kind of explained the nuance, right? Um, but, you know, so yeah, upfront visually, it seems very kind of, you know, in your face, you see the ankle monitor, you see the kid, you see the goalpost, and you're just, you can assume this kid is an athlete. And then the nuance comes in with all of those kind of underlying issues. I think the difficulty with that is, like, your viewer has the choice to engage with that and try to dig, you know, to that place within themselves, but it's really up to them And you, you know, the artist can't be there to kind of explain that to everybody like I've just explained it to you.
0: How do you go about capturing something that seems as abstract as redlining, which was a a policy Mm -hmm. that inherently is invisible to the naked eye and categorize it as violence Mm -hmm. and then capture that through visual medium?
5: Uh, that's been the question that I've been trying to answer for the past year. Um, and so, you know, I i guess I've been looking for kind of signs in the landscape. Um, and it started when I first visited North Omaha. Like I noticed a lot of the empty lots where you could tell something used to be there, um, but it isn't anymore, whether it's a home or a business. And um, figuring out like, you know, why those things were um, destroyed, essentially. Um and so, you know, photographing those things, looking at um the construction of the North Freeway and how that displaced people and how that was built through North Omaha because of again because of race, because um black individuals didn't have enough social capital to say, no, you're not gonna put that here, right? Yeah, looking at those types of things and then trying to figure out how like other elements to bring in that um can I guess reframe this issue as a as a form of violence that's, you know, perpetrated because of race.
0: One of the most caring and joyful people I have met is Brigitte McQueen Shu, the executive director of the Union for Contemporary Art. Brigitte has had to endure much to emerge as one of Omaha's most vital people. And she shared a little of that with me when we spoke in June of 2019.
6: Um, so when Teen People Folded, um, I was in a lovely situation where I was had been making New York salary living in Omaha, um, was offered the severance package, realized that I wanted to make this transition to working in the arts. So I opened uh, Pulp in Benson. And so Pulp was essentially a small handmade stationery, sort of bespoke stationery shop that had this contemporary gallery attached to it where I would show works of contemporary art um, that were focused on paper and wood. And it was lovely. I loved everything about it. I invested my life savings in it. Um, It was my everything. I felt like it was wildly successful. It was fun. It was an amazing adventure. The downside of it is that I had the (laughs) unfortunate timing of opening it right at the dawn of the recession. So everything was lovely when I opened in 2007. By the time we were in the middle of 2008, going into 2009, everything was falling apart in the country economically. Um, And so that also had an impact on my business. I was not selling art and I was not selling cards. The shop was taking care of itself, but it wasn't taking care of me. So in that process, I lost my house and I lost my car and I lost my life savings. I almost went bankrupt. It was a horrible, horrible time. But I learned a lot about failure and I learned a lot about being at the bottom. I learned that when you hit bottom, you can either lie there and give up or you can bounce. And sometimes when you bounce, you bounce higher than where you fell from. And I feel very much so that that is what happened to me. I will never be 80 and look back and say, oh my gosh, I wish I had done that thing, because I'm doing the, the thing. I can tell you what my hopes are for our community in five years. I hope that in five years the conversations that we are having around disparities and in, inequities in, in North Omaha is not a conversation to be had anymore. I feel like there are some really incredible movements afoot, um, some things bubbling that will bring true revitalization to the community. And I am excited about all of those things around housing and transportation and economic development, some really exciting things Lie ahead for us. And I hope that we are open and able to embrace those things um, and that we are all participants in bringing them to fruition.
0: There have been many wonderful guests sharing their stories and how they make community a better place. To hear all of our shows, you can listen back to the podcasts via the webpage livesradioshow.com I hope together we can listen to each other and make the world a more just, equitable place for us all especially those minorities who are oppressed and denied their voice That's the end of this week's show Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar Mctizic. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden Live's Radio Show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life.